Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. I've brought back to interview my colleague Gabriel Krauser, head of campaigns at the IRR, because it never being a moment of quiet or stillness, last week turned out to be what I think, I think Gabriel described as a hell of a week and probably more accurately would have described as the week from hell. It concerned two pieces of legislation that deal with property rights. But more than that, it's what it's really brought into focus is the extent to which the, that legislation plus other pending or existing legislation seeks all round to constrain property, private property ownership, which is really the potential kiss of death to both local and uh, international investment. So, Gabriel, well, welcome, and we have you back again as things never cease to develop. It's, uh, it's not good news. It's not absolutely fabulous. It's, uh, it's quite the opposite, but, uh, it's good to be with you and, uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, Gabriel, what happened last week? The, the week of hell, the hell week, um, the week that shall not be named. <laughs> Hellacious, uh, last week of September. Well, we saw, Obviously, in Johannesburg, the you know disruption of the mayoralty and all that, and I think the story is connected. But the two big legislative legislative moves were that the expropriation bill and the land court bill were both voted on at the national assembly and both were given assent. So they've been sent off to the council of provinces, and from there they go to the president's desk. From there they become law, unless we can stop it. It's remarkable that both of these bills had only arrived on the floor of the national assembly. The week before. So I've spoken to MPs that have been in Parliament for 30 years uh, who say they really can't, they can't remember the last time anything moved that quickly from committee through the National Assembly. That's disturbing because it gives the sense that someone in the ANC uh, who voted for it, the only party who did really, only major party, someone really wants to get this done quickly. Someone, someone is committed to, to this agenda or, or rather the party as a whole has reaffirmed its commitment to this agenda in a practical way. So I think it's going to be useful just to refresh people's memories if they haven't, if they've already heard of it or, or, or lay it down on what these bills do. The expropriation bill uh, does a couple of things. I'll just list a few. One is that it defines expropriation in a really weird way, which basically tries to leave open this window for the government to take people's property and call it custodianship. And then they don't even have to pass a just and equitable test for compensation. So treat it the same way minerals and water have been treated. The second thing that it does really is less technical, more obviously a threat, is it, it says, look, you can have expropriation without compensation. You can The government can take people's property, specifically land, for an open list of reasons. So there's reasons it hasn't even dreamt up yet. But within the list, it says, you know, if you bought the land primarily for the purpose of selling it at a profit, well, the government can take it away because profit is evil, I guess. Also, if your land has been invaded and you've lost control over it, Section 12.3c, uh, says, well, then the government can take away the title deed too. So, you know, redoubling the, the burden on the owner and really uh, punishing the owner for for already having been invaded. Um, another thing that the expropriation bill does is it allows uh, municipal officials, for example, to give a notice of expropriation 
without first providing good reasons for why this is the property that's been earmarked for that expropriation, it also allows for the expropriation to be completed before the, any court case has been completed in determining whether the compensation offered by the state is just and equitable. So there's a, you know, a whole lot pitted against the puny citizen. Um, and in favor of the gargantuan state. But look, some people say, uh, Professor Almin Duplessis from Northwest University says, this is not so bad because, you know, the government officials aren't going to take advantage of it. And if they try, the courts will step in and save you. Okay. okay. But just what the land court bill does, the, the courts are already not exactly everything that you'd ever want from an independent judiciary. Uh, but there have been some, you know, landmark cases where the, where, where the Constitutional Court has, for example, and the Supreme Court of Appeal um, have found against uh, the government of the day. But here's what the Land Court Bill does. It says, look, all of those cases are going to come to the Land Court, not to the High Court. And once it gets to the Land Court, it can't go to the Supreme Court of Appeal. That's just written off. And the Land Court, uh, well, explicitly it says can admit evidence that would not be considered admissible in any other court of law. Hearsay evidence, it explicitly says, can matter as much as the court decides on a case-by-case basis. So it could be dispositive. The whole case could be decided on, you know, auntie told me that uh, granny said uh, that uh, this land belongs to me. Okay, but maybe I'm being, you know, what aren't the judges going to be really good, sober, judicious, independent people? Well, the land court bill says that there will be assessors which effectively can be drawn from a pool of race, nationalist, Marxists, you know, emerging from the sausage factories, <laughs> the Marxist sausage factories of, of, of land activism in South Africa's academia. And I'm thinking about people like Ben Cousins and Rosali Kingwell and so on who, who, who say t- what I consider to be terrible things like, you know, black people can't uh, have title deeds, uh, generally speaking, because, uh, it's not in their culture to be self-responsible. Um, and so the government has to hold on to the land on behalf of the people. Um, it is a perpetuating ideology since apartheid days, and it's, it's why the Bantu stands didn't include private property, and it's why 22 million South Africans still live in effective Bantu stands where they are on government land that the government refuses to privatize and hand out title deeds. But anyway, the point is those kinds of uh, uh, ideologues, Marxist ideologues, they can become assessors in the court, and there are two assessors and one judge in a case, or can be, and mm. the assessors can outvote the judge on determining any question of fact, and that's a direct quote. <laughs> so if you are hoping for an independent judiciary, you need to read the land court bill and realize that if, if I and you, sorry, if we sat down for a weekend and we specifically went out of our way to imagine a bill that as far as possible with one stroke would undermine the independence of the judiciary with regards to land cases. We couldn't do better than this. I don't mm. think, I think these guys are smarter than us. I think that they have done a better job than we could in terms mm. of undermining the independent judiciary. So these bills, they really work together and they really make me worry a lot about the future of this country and we have, you know, I was going over the numbers at the start of the year when we beat the constitutional amendment to mm. to, to protect property rights. We, you know, we, we we succeeded there, and I saw that the Institute of Race Relations had, since the motion had been tabled at the beginning of uh, Ramaphosa's presidency um, in 2018, we had 
made over 3,000 mainstream media appearances arguing against expropriation without compensation, arguing for property rights, arguing for property rights as a pro-poor policy, by the way, you know, and, and laying out a, a very reasonable way to, to privatize all that state, almost all of that state-owned land, and to draw on economists like Hernando de Soto and international experiences of, of where things have worked out, and, and to show international warnings, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, you know, it's like, in a way, it's quite simple stuff, but someone had to go out and say it over and over again to, to try and reach the corners mm. of the machine. We weren't alone. Many others did it. But I'm just saying, like, it, it might sound repetitive, but the challenges are fresh because the constitutional court, uh, the constitutional amendment failed. But these two laws and others as well, actually, they are, they are going forward. Mm. The ANC has determined to make them go forward and it's a very unfortunate decision from that political party. Mm. And, uh, and, and it, it really, it really bodes poorly. And part of the problem is that this time round, mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of despair and a lot of complacency and mm. almost like a fatalistic resignation. And, 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 you know, the only way to make sure that this really does happen is to, is, to, <laughs> is if, is if, uh, people just allow it. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to come Shortly, shortly to what we're doing, because the RR, if, if it does nothing else, uh, always tries to do something and do something positively and get into, keep getting into the fray and, and to find out how much, you know, what people can do. But there's just a couple of things from what you raised that I, I picked up on. The one is that uh, Professor Duplessis' comment about, you know, uh, uh, Functionaries, government functionaries would not take advantage of the law. I mean, I'm a little intrigued by that because sort of in Law 101 or whatever we used <laughs> to call it, Law 101, the first thing you learned is you, legislation always has to be drafted with the worst possible scenario in mind. In other words, your, your laws had to make sure they dealt with the most egregious behavior of government officials or, or the state. And you have to, you have to approve your law, or you should approve your law appropriately. In other words, if your law didn't deal with the, the worst guys, you were going to get the worst guys. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the American founding, uh, authors said the famous line, if men were angels, we'd have no need for laws. Mm. Right? The, the only reason you need the law in the first place is because people are not perfect. In fact, it's because people are often quite evil, right? That's what the law is there to protect. You need a law against murder to deal with the murderers. You need a law against yeah. theft to deal with the crooks. And you need laws uh, not just to deal with private crooks, but also to deal with crooks that are in the public sector. Uh, there's no kind of uh, transition. Like uh, it's a very trans world, but like once you become a government official, you don't stop being a human and start becoming an angel. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you're still a human being, and the law very much needs to guard against you because you have the power of the states. I mean, one way that I, I try to describe the land court bill in particular, the, the sort of the way that it works with these assessors and the dilution of the rules of evidence and the removal of the Supreme Court of Appeal as a check to balance out uh, the land court's rulings and so on, is that it's like 
if you look at how the EFF behaves in Parliament, I mean, you know, these are mm. uh, politicians that are going to be appointing officials, and that some of whom, you know, uh, uh, really work very closely with land activists. Like, if you look at how they behave in Parliament, and you just add to the toy toying, angry mob behaviour, just add a gavel to each member's hand, mm. and that gavel can strike down on the heads of their enemies with the full might of the South African police service and the army, if need be, uh, you're, you're putting gavels in the hands of people who are openly calling for the law to be broken in terms of uh, land invasions. And and again, it's, it's not just that you're putting the gavel in the one hand, it's also that you're saying, on the other hand, that if a land invasion successfully deprives control from an owner, then that owner can be expropriated without compensation. You also have, by the way, the unlawful entering on premises bill, which wanted to ask almost, you about that, yeah. You know, the, the new trespassing bill. That's almost mm-hmm. certainly going to be tried under the land court uh, system. Uh, you can't lock it in um, until the bill's been passed, but it's, it's pretty clear that's what's going to happen. And the unlawful entering on premises bill creates this semi-subjective, vague test for if it's okay for someone to come onto your property, which is do they believe that they have do they reasonably believe that they have a title or interest in doing so? Now, the reasonably qualification should make it an objective test. Not quite mm-hmm. the same as a lawfulness, but it should be an objective test. So a good judge should be able to say, look, you were told by some ward councillor, let's imagine, although I know cases where this has actually happened. You've been told by some ward councillor that you can go and invade that land because that guy's not a good guy and the, the property shouldn't belong to him in the first place because it's evil colonial stuff. And and so you went and did it. You believed that you could go and take that person's stuff, but it's not a reasonable belief. You know, a judge could say that's not a reasonable belief. Just because Malema told you to invade it doesn't make it reasonable. However, you know, if if the land assessors are adjudicating that fact it can go the other way. So there's a problem. And then the PIE Act, the Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act, says that once someone is in there, once someone has taken your, invaded your property, if you call the police to try and remove them, if they've been there long enough to take off their pants, proverbially, or put up a sheet of metal, it, the police will come, but not to help you remove them. The police will come to remove you if you try to remove them. Uh, that is the law. The law says you cannot evict someone without a court order, which takes basically minimum eight months, but easily can take years, and mm. with some provision of alternative accommodation under the current system, uh, which you must then provide, or you must wait for the state to provide it, but they could take many years. And then in the meanwhile, people are living on your land. Uh, you have to pay the rates. You have to pay the water and electricity and so on, the search, disposal of refuse. Uh, it's a huge, it's a huge nightmare and, and land invasions in the Western Cape, which is the only place where it's recorded, are clearly on the up. Anecdotally, we don't have official government statistics anywhere else, but, you know, I think anyone who's driven, uh, on the, from the highway from Joburg to Durban or from Joburg to Blum, Cape Town, you know, you can see around the periphery of, of Gaute, of Johannesburg in particular, just control over your land for an almost indefinite period. Uh, so you combine the unlawful entering on premises bill, which says, you know, someone can go and invade your land as long as someone else told them. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back, everybody, and apologies for the um, glitches. Um, as I say, I think I think our, our, what 
systems we're running on for energy is getting is, uh, are slowly fading away. As of course, I've lost my train of thought. So what I wanted to ask was, if I recall correctly, virtually at the stroke of midnight in the at the elective conference in 2017, the proposal for the expropriation without property um, legislation was made. So it then became very much a, a key feature of uh, of Sora Ramaphosa's presidency to put through that um, to, to put through that legislation of that kind, and it's gone sort of meandered in this way and that over the last five years. And then suddenly, it's going through at the rate of knots, as you mentioned earlier. Surely this must have something to do with the elective conference coming up in essentially what less than two months' time. Yeah, I think that's exactly spot on. I think that. Both factions of the ANC, or all three, however many you want to count, want to go into the conference without this issue looming as, as a wedge. Uh, mm. So at the moment, you know, the one side can say to Ramaphosa, look, you promised to implement expropriation without compensation, and great. Um, we're, we're sort of on the road, but, you know, it's been really, really long time. It's been like five years, and it's not happening. So you're useless, so we need to replace you. Now, the 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 thing to be careful of is no one's replacing Ramaphosa. He is far and away the most popular figure in the country and in the ANC, and the ANC knows that, and every member of parliament, every member of the NEC, etc., knows that their prospects depend directly on their ability to maximize votes in the 2024 election, or at least... Uh, minimize losses and Ramaphosa is an integral feature in that. But for bargaining, for other positions, etc., for the kinds of horse trading that really are the meat and potatoes of politics, the um, it's worth bearing in mind. He's been nominated ANC leader, and I promise to implement the policy resolution of expropriation without compensation, as long as, as he said, it doesn't undermine food security, it doesn't undermine the rule of law, it doesn't undermine the economy, and then you know, come to terms with the fact that it will undermine it and be like, hey, you know, these independent experts, civil society, 500,000 plus South, South African scientists. This is obviously our day of uh, bad and freezing connections despite the heat of the day. I'm, I'll, I'll try again. Maybe, maybe yeah, this will be clearer. Political capital to try and reduce the expectations of expropriation without compensation and ultimately drive it off the policy agenda. On the very basis that he initiated the thing by saying it can't get in the way of economic growth, it can't get in the way of food security. What are the stats? Right now, according to the United Nations, 1.5 million children under the age of five in South Africa are suffering stunted growth because they're not getting enough calories and nutrition. So food security, we've got the best in Africa, but we've got the, you know, it's, it's, it's so, unacceptably low at the same time. We need to be improving it, not undermining the agricultural sector. Let's look at investment. APSA just released a report uh, uh, yesterday saying gross fixed capital formation is down, is less than half of what it is expected to be and what it was a decade ago and what it needs to be. Mm. And they particularly break it down and they say, what is the worst? The worst is construction. No mm. one wants to build or invest mm. in land in South Africa. Well, Sarah, riddle me this. That number mm. starts falling off the edge of a cliff just around the time that the ANC announced 
that its official policy under Ramaphosa was going to be expropriation without compensation. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> no. The only uh, gross fixed capital formation sector that's up, APSA sort of says this is amazing and we can't understand why, is in movable manufacturing uh, processing units. So the kinds of things where if the, you know <laughs> lights keep switching or you know basically they're talking about generators, like a lot of mm. people are buying jennies and stuff like that. It's just it, it there's more than enough evidence. You don't have to look at Venezuela or Zimbabwe anymore. You can look at just the threat of EWC here from the beginning. Ramaphosa's own advisors going around the world asking for investments said the expropriation without compensation move. Is the big is the biggest policy thing giving us gears? We we just it's very hard to hmm. convince people to come and invest when they don't know if they can keep their stuff. He has had so many excuses to use to say, look, we thought EWC was a good idea, but we got to drop it. We got to do what's good for our people, and what's good for our people is privatizing the land uh, that uh, was formerly uh, made into a communist nightmare by the Nats in the form of Bantustans. We need to get rid of that legacy of apartheid and get a bit of go forward. Uh, but he hasn't done that. So he has he has wedded himself over five years to expropriation without compensation. He has made it his signature policy, and he has to uh, rush to get it through by the time of the electoral conference so that he's got something to say not to his base. I've seen the polls. The ANC base is very afraid of expropriation without compensation. He's got to have something to say to his fellow elites mm. in the ANC, to the superdelegates, the National Executive Council, you know, the top six and the top uh, hundred and the top 3,000. He needs to be able to say to those ideologues in the South African Communist Party that are part of the tripartite alliance, look, Yorks have been saying what we need to do. South Africa is getting too bourgeois. It's time to get real. And, and, the, and the key to success is going to be to revive the peasant economy on a pre-colonial basis. And um, I've got the policies to do that. We've got land courts mm-hmm. that are going to bring back traditional justice, and we've got expropriation of our compensation that's going to make it possible for us to, yeah, take not just to land, uh, but it starts with land. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I've, I've always held that uh, – that Ramaphosa is a very committed socialist. He's not a he's not a capitalist. He's not a free marketeer, um, and this would all accord with that uh, process of of adhering to a belief system that probably was molded in the early sixties and sort of never really never really changed. With that in mind, however, um, Gabriel, do you want to give us some idea of what the IR is going to do from here forward to to really try and attack this sort of a, this attack on property? Let me just quickly say, uh, I remember, uh, yeah, five years ago, I thought you were wrong. I thought Ramaphosa was was going to be a great reformer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I started changing my mind as soon as he started talking about expropriation without compensation. Mm. So about literally three hours after he was elected, um, mm. but it was a my I was a new donor for three hours. Um, <sighs> other people, Peter Bruce is a new donor for like a year. Other people are new donors for four years. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you were ahead of the curve, and and, and absolutely. And, the right way to do it. Okay, what are we doing to to address this? First and foremost, it's important to not just treat the National Council of Provinces process like a rubber stamp. Uh, if you treat it like a rubber stamp, it's going to be a rubber stamp. Uh, there is an opportunity to make written submissions to the Council of Provinces, like the South Africa Senate, and say to them, guys, these are this stuff is so unconstitutional. These are the reasons that you've got to amend 
the one bill and strike down the other. And we've got very simple amendments that everyone can get behind. The second thing to note is that there will be public hearings in all nine provinces. We're going to get to as many of those as we can, and we're going to be stirring the pot to try and get as many other people to go to them as, as, as can be done. Now, in the constitutional amendment case, we know that many of those land hearings were orchestrated circuses, scripts being handed out for people to come and say what the government wanted them to say in order to stoke this idea that people want uh, a revanchist race-based uh, vengeful policy en masse. Uh, you know, you can do some journalism to try and expose the orchestration of it. Uh, but really, I think South Africans need to, South Africans need to get used to the idea that if you, if you really want to stop this thing, you're going to have to make your voice heard. Ultimately, you might have to go on the streets and do a peaceful march, like the peaceful marches to remove Jacob Zuma. I was involved in a couple of those. Mm. Tens of thousands of people, you know, went to the union building and said, we're just done with this guy. Uh, mm. we need to mature as a democracy from marching against individuals to marching against bad ideas. Ultimately, mm. you've got to play the ball, not the man, if you want sustainable change. But that's more, that's not immediate. The immediate thing is to try and get people alert to this and get people in power, in powerful positions to touch the, to touch the, you know, government where, where, where it gets noticed. So we've reached out to all the major banks. One of the banks, uh, Nedbank, has reaffirmed its position saying, look, you've, you can't allow expropriation without compensation. If you allow expropriation at below market value and that uh, causes some people to be unable to repay their mortgages, that too could cause a, a local version of the global financial crisis. Uh, that's unacceptable. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. I've let Gabriel off because of the, uh, the freezing of his, of his connection, um, but I think he's, he's got the issue across extremely well. And, you know, when, when a government sort of puts together legislation of this nature, which in most cases is going to have one or more elements of unconstitutionality, and it starts to get a real sense of public opposition, they often back down. And by backing down in this case, what, what would be a good start is that preferably first it doesn't, they don't pass through the uh, National Council of Provinces un, uh, unamended. And the second is, even if they were to, is you put pressure on the president because only his signature on the legislation is the last act that happens before the bills become acts and 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 are are enforceable. And maybe I'm that little bit of optimist in me, and you, you know me, I don't do optimism terribly well. The little bit of optimism optimism in me says that that the president is not either a, a, a speedy man, he doesn't do things quickly. I think he's relatively easily intimidated by having to make momentous decisions. And I think if we ultimately have to look to, if we have to go beyond the National Council of Provinces and look to him to stop him, to persuade him that he must not sign this stuff into law, I, I think, I think, I think he's our man. I, I think he's very, this is very much, very suddenly become been put before the National Assembly, it, it's only to do with the, the, as Gabriel says, to appeasing the elites at the elective conference, which is going to determine who will be the next president of the ANC and therefore the next president of the, of the country, unless 
we end up with the ANC losing the election and not being able to form a coalition, in which case for the first time since 94, we'll have a, we'd have a completely new government. But it's, it's, you know, the, the basically it's, it, it's, one mustn't give up. It's never over till it's over. And these, uh, this, this stuff, which is really ruinous. And I mean, it is, you just have to say, we are going to diminish your, your private property rates, uh, rights for investors to turn tail. And right now, everyone but us is making investment in their countries attractive. Only we are literally, literally seemingly going to the other direction. And that is because, first and foremost, it's the ANC trying to protect the ANC. That's, that's what it's about. It's not about any of the good stuff. It's about, it's about the venal stuff. It's about hanging on to the ability to make money, to get things. And, and it's, that's, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's certainly not for the, for the good of the nation. So having said that, I want to put some fighting spirit into you and to join us where we can encourage you to sign any petition to march in any march and just to write letters to newspapers and be vocal. It can make a difference. We've seen it happen before. So join the fight, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.